Are you listening? I'm sure that's the question that the National Weather Service experts asked themselves on the afternoon of May 22nd, 2011 in Joplin, Missouri. You see, the sirens were blaring. The warning had gone off. They had given people plenty of time to respond. Are you listening? You see, most of the residents were used to hearing these sirens. That their first response was to check for themselves, to look outside to see whether or not the warning that they heard was specific to them and if the danger was real. Many didn't take shelter on that day. There was a massive tornado that came through Joplin, Missouri and took the life of 158 people, leaving destruction and death and pain and brokenness in its wake. The warning had been made, but people at some level didn't think it was important. Before you think that's too crazy, a couple weeks ago and even a month ago, there have been some warnings, some tornado warnings even in our area. And if you're like me, our first response is to pull out our phone, right? Pull up our, our weather app, pull out the radar, look outside maybe. See, one of these times I was outside flying kites with my daughters on a Sunday afternoon. It was really windy. The skies weren't even dark yet, and the sirens were going off. My girls are freaking out, and they're like, Dad, we have to go home. we got to get in the basement. And I'm looking around, and I'm like, we've got time. The other time was probably about a month ago, maybe two months ago. It was a Thursday evening. There was a deacon and elder meeting here, um, and there was also some rooted groups that were meeting that night. And, uh, man, it was a crazy storm. It was really windy. And the sirens are going off. And uh, there were some ladies that were making their way through the hallway. They had opened the, the door in classroom three. They had peeked in. They said, do you guys hear the, the warning? Do you hear the sirens? And we all said, yeah, we're good. It's north of here. You see, the warnings that we hear, sometimes we look for more information to ask more questions for ourselves, to see if we are really in danger, to see if it really specifically applies to us. You know, in those moments, we become expert meteorologists, and maybe you guys can resonate with this. You do the same thing. Today, I want us to hear this. If we're not careful, we do the exact same things with the commands and the teachings of Jesus. You know, we hear them, Maybe we hear them too often, we're just so callous to them. We don't believe them, or maybe we believe that they don't apply to our life or our situation. Or we just simply don't take action. So this morning, the last of the parables in our Kingdom Parable series, I believe Jesus has an urgent message for all of his hearers. In this last parable, Jesus gives a loud and clear warning to all of his listeners about the certainty of eternal judgment. Right? Not a fun message to preach. Are you listening? Really listening. So we've been in Matthew chapter 13 for the last four weeks. And uh, today, like I said, we wrap up that series. We're going to be in Matthew 13, 47 to 51. We saw at the beginning of Matthew that Jesus was teaching to the crowds in parables. He was surrounded the area of the Sea of Galilee and, and people were there surrounding him. So he was teaching in parables. 
these, these people that were following him at the moment, so they, they were the casual fence rider Christians, uh, possibly just entertained with the things that Jesus was saying and doing. And when Jesus was teaching these things, he was going straight to the heart of their belief. But at this point in the text, in last week's text, we see something a little bit different. You see, Jesus is with the disciples away from the crowds. Jesus goes into the house, and he, he's speaking specifically to the disciples at this point. The disciples are asking for further explanation of what these parables mean. So just a refresher, the parable or a parable is uh, something that is cast alongside of something else. That's what parable means, to cast alongside. When you throw out something familiar alongside of something that is unfamiliar, you make the unfamiliar thing clearer. Another way of saying it is you take normal, everyday things or elements of life and you connect the dots to the profound truths about the kingdom of God. You see, the kingdom of God is not a political kingdom. It's a realm in which Jesus has full authority to rule and reign. And I'm reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 28 there at the Great Commission where he says, All authority has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. Jesus has all authority. It's about his rule and reign. And as we consider that for our lives, what it looks like is the byproduct of how we live. We don't live for the current world and the current culture. We live to a different ethic and a different standard because we are kingdom citizens. So this morning, if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 13 if you haven't already. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat back ahead of you. And you are welcome to take that home with you today on your way out. Uh, you can also have a smartphone device, pull that out, or look up here on the screens. There's many ways to, to hear and see God's word this morning. But I would like to invite you to stand with me this morning as we read in reverence and honor of God's word. Matthew 13, 47 to 51. Jesus says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all of these things? They said to him, yes. Would you pray with me this morning? Jesus, we stand before you today, and our prayer is that we would not just be hearers of your word, not just be hearers of these warnings, but God, that you would penetrate our hearts with who you are, and that we would be listening with our hearts. Holy Spirit, that we would have hearts for you, that you would stir within us a, a greater affection for Jesus that is lived out in the day-to-day. -day. That, Father, we would, we would rest in your strength, that we would trust you more. And, Father, that you would strengthen us by your power and by your words this morning. Father, find us faithful to live this out and to own the warning that you have given us this morning in the day-to-day. -day. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this is a straightforward passage, and uh, it's a, a very heavy passage as well. And this morning, 
I'd like for us to see three functions within the text, but then I'd also like us to uh, look at the text and, and reflect on it and ask ourselves questions to apply it to our lives. Because I truly believe that when Jesus gives a strong warning like this, it is something for all of us in here. The first thing I want us to see happens in verse 47, and I'm going to call it the gathering. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into sea and gathered fish of every kind. You see, Jesus is speaking this parable or these parables in a fishing culture. Um, I had the privilege to go to Israel and the Sea of Galilee back in 2010. And uh, being able to sit there and be by the Sea of Galilee, you understood what it was like to be there uh, when Jesus was there. Okay, We don't currently live in a fishing culture. I mean, we're close to Lake Erie. But we're not in a fishing culture. We have fishing stories. Um, there are many people in here probably that love to fish, and we all have fishing stories. But we don't live in a fishing culture. So Jesus here wouldn't have to have had to find a net for them. He wouldn't have to, to tell them, uh, like, what, this is what the sea is. They were already have known this. You see, in Matthew 4, Jesus calls his disciples to follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So Jesus was using something that they already knew and understood and connecting it with the kingdom of God. Because they were fishermen by trade, they would have understood this. This was their life. It was a part of who they were. You know, we see different types of fishing within scripture. There was the, the, the line and the hook. Uh, we saw casting nets from the side of the shore or off the side of a boat. But something interesting about this net is different from all other nets. Because the word net here in this passage is only used one time in the New Testament. The word net here is the Greek word segene. That word means a massive, large net or a dragnet. And what that net looked like, and I've never seen one, but what that net looked like, it would have been attached to one boat and probably to the shoreline. And that boat would, would drive out into or float out into the water. Okay? And the top of this net would have, would have corks on it that would allow it to float. And the bottom of this net would have heavy weights or anchors that would allow it to sink all the way down to the bottom. The reason they would call it a dragnet is as this boat would circle around, this massive net, probably about a half a mile wide, would scoop up everything in its path. Everything in its path. Not just, not just fish, but also seaweed and trash and all things. There are many scholars who believe that the net in this story is a picture of the gospel. It refers to the message of the gospel. And the sea in this passage refers to um, the world or all of humanity. So what we see in this, in this passage is, is the net, this dragnet, the message of the gospel going out into the sea to gather all kinds of fish. What I know about the gospel is that the gospel, when, when spoken and proclaimed, uh, that it is a wide net, Right? And that it is available for all. And the gathering of the fish into this net, what we see in verse 47 and 48, that this is happening right now in our day. That we are a part of this gathering. That we are a part of the, the kingdom citizens of the gathering process of bringing fish into the net. By sharing the good news of the gospel. You see, the Bible teaches that one day that Jesus' rule and reign will be over all of the earth. Habakkuk 2.14 says that the earth would be filled with the glory of the knowledge of God as water covers the sea. 
So there will be one day when, when Jesus sets up his rule and reign over all of the earth. But at this time, I think it's important for us to also see that those, this message of the gospel, this net into the sea of humanity and in the world is a picture of the kingdom of God and how it is available for all of creation. That God's rule and reign is available for fish of every kind. Romans 5 talks about it like this, that every nation, every tribe, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And they will be a part of this gathering process. Matthew 24, 14 says it like this, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed, spoken, right, throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The second thing I want us to see here in this text is the sorting, and specifically the sorting of fish or the separating of the fish. In verse 48, uh, here we see Jesus go on to tell us what happens when the net is full and brought into shore. It says, men drew in the net to shore and sorted the good into containers and threw out the bad. Very similar to the story that we see in Matthew chapter 25 of the parable of the sheep and the goats where there is a clear and definitive separation. Also very similar to what we saw a few weeks ago in Matthew 13 where, uh, where, where we saw the wheat and the weeds or the wheat and the tares and there is a clear and definitive separation. See, scholars tell us that there were about 24 species of fish in the Sea of Galilee. And what's interesting about that is uh, there was a sorting process that had to take place. For these Jewish fishermen, uh, this would have been a normal routine for them. You know, it was a custom in their day, according to their Jewish dietary laws, as God gave them a specific word in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 11 that said, anything with, with scales or fins are clean. Everything else is to be thrown out. Everything else is detestable to you. Take its carcass and throw it out. All the clean fish, put them into containers and gather them together. So here the good fish would be separated from the bad and put in containers. So when Jesus was illustrating this parable to the disciples, he didn't need to explain it. They, they fully understood the context of what he was saying. They knew what made a fish good. And they knew what made a fish bad. But this parable of fish and the parable of the net is not about fish. It's about people. The question I have for us today is what makes people good or bad? And I think even in this room, we want to believe in our core that people are good, right? That there are good people in this world. But what makes people good? Is it the, the moral standard that they ascribe to, maybe their, their own level of achievements, maybe the, the work that they've done, their, their success. Maybe it's their, their intentions or their motives. Maybe it's that. What makes a person good? You see, God's word defines this for us. In Romans chapter 3, it says that there is none righteous, not even one. So based upon God's standard of good, there is none righteous, right? Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of this weight of God's glory. And because of our sin, Romans 6 says that uh, the payment for that sin or the wages for that sin is death. Ephesians chapter 2 goes on to explain it like this. It says, We are dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course 
of this world, living after the passions and the desires of our flesh and carrying out the desires of body and mind. It says that we are children of wrath by nature like the rest of mankind. And for those of you who have children in this room or if you've ever had a child or raised a child, you understand from the beginning of time, you don't have to teach them to sin, right? They are little sinners from the earliest of ages. But the beauty of the gospel in verse 4 in Ephesians 2 says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love for us, which he had loved us, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, has made us alive together with Christ, for by grace we have been saved. He has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. You see, in this sorting process Jesus speaks of here, the difference between good and bad has everything to do with what Jesus defines for good and not anything to do with what we define for good. It has nothing to do with my effort or your effort, but it has everything to do with the perfect work of Jesus and his finished work on the cross and his resurrection. You see, on the cross, Jesus bled and died for the atonement, for the forgiveness of your sin and my sin. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it like this, that, that there was an exchange that took place, that he, Jesus, became sin. He knew no sin, right? So that, that in him we could be righteous. We would become the righteousness of God. So there was an exchange that Jesus got our sin and we got his righteousness. Theologians call it this, the imputed righteousness of God. So that when God looks down upon us, he doesn't see our sin, but he sees the blood of Jesus that covers and cleanses our sin. And that's a beautiful picture of the gospel. You see, sin was paid in full. And any good status that any one of us might hold to is, again, not due to our performance or anything that we can muster up with inside of us and pull up our bootstraps and say, I did this on my own. Any good within us comes from God. You see, it's due to the fact that by faith that you trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior on his perfect work for you, you trust in his righteousness and friends, family, church, this is good news. This is really good news. So maybe this morning you're sitting in here and you're hearing this. And you have to redefine for yourself what good is. Maybe you've been believing all of this time that it had something to do with your ability. Now do hear me right. When you respond by faith and trust in Jesus and give your life to him, there at some level is a response, a byproduct a fruit of your life that looks different because of that faith. But it had nothing to do with you. Salvation is all from God. The third thing I want us to see this morning is the judgment. Verse 49 says, So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here, Jesus gives the explanation of this parable to the disciples. And again, if I'm just being honest, this is not an easy passage to preach. Uh, I can thank Brandon a ton. This is, I, I drew the short straw in this series. And, uh, and uh, yeah, if you know my last name, uh, Dave Short, so very punny. So um, hell is a place of judgment, a fiery furnace with weeping and gnashing of teeth. The New Testament also calls it a lake of fire. And in churches, this is not a very hot topic. We don't like to picture Jesus talking to us like this. The thought of people actually spending eternity apart from God in hell 
is agonizing and should do something in our soul. You know, it's simply easier to ignore its existence altogether. You know, so many mixed emotions around the topic of hell. You know, is it real? Where is it? If it is real, um, you know, why, why would a loving God send people to hell? You know, I'm sure you've heard that question yourself. And even as you're growing in your faith or you've, you've come to the North Canton Chapel or to church in general, you've probably heard people on the outside ask that question. Why, if God is loving, why would he send people to hell? And again, I hope to answer that question for you a little bit. It all stems from uh, a misunderstanding of our own sin and a misunderstanding of who God is. You see, Tim Keller says in his book, The Reason for God, he says it like this. He says, hell is the trajectory of a soul living a self-absorbed, self-centered life going on and on forever. Hell is one's freely chosen identity apart from God on the trajectory into infinity. J.D. Greer, a pastor in North Carolina, says it like this. Hell is the culmination of telling God to get out of my life. We keep telling God to leave us alone. And finally, he says, okay. You see, we forget that the creator God, the sustainer God of all life has all authority. He's the one that calls the shots. And from the beginning of time, when sin entered into the world, we read in, in Romans chapter 5, it's because of Adam's sin that we've inherited that. It says, and death by sin, death, death has, you know, sin has cast upon all men so that all have sinned. We are recipients of this original inherited sin. So we have two options in life. We can live for God or we can live for ourselves. Many people are going to downplay the finality of Jesus' teaching about hell. And church family, let me, let me tell you this today. It's super important that we hear and heed Jesus' warnings. Because Jesus taught more about hell throughout scriptures than any other person in scripture. And if, if, if Jesus taught about it, here's the truth. If Jesus taught it, we can believe it because Jesus' words are true. You know, hell is more than um, just a place where we think that, that Satan is going to rule and reign there and he's going to torment people. That is definitely a misconception that we have of what hell is. Jesus says this in Matthew 25. He calls it a place of eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. A place where he speaks of sorrow, where there will be, where there'll be no more, um, uh, I mean, where, where there will be pain and suffering, and there, there will be a place where, where people can actually feel and know that they are suffering. This suffering is not temporary, this suffering is eternal. This text in Matthew 13 says that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And uh, the word for hell here in Matthew 13 is the word Gehenna. Gehenna was actually a place outside the walls of Jerusalem where they would burn the trash and burn the bodies. So it was a, a place of constant fire and it was always blazing and it was dark. You see, scripture teaches that punishment, punishment for sin is an eternal destination apart from God. Eternally separated God from God forever. But maybe you're here this morning and, and you think, you know, I really didn't want to hear this on a Sunday morning. This is not really how I wanted to spend my weekend. Um, again, I can assure you that this is not easy to deliver as well. 
But Jesus taught us this truth, and he taught his disciples this truth. So it's important for us to listen and respond to these warnings. Maybe you're sitting here and you say, you know what, this doesn't apply to me. And you're also the same people, myself included, that sit on an airplane and we, we listen to the flight attendants or we don't listen to the flight attendants. We put in our earbuds and we're looking at our phones and they're talking about the warnings and the dangers of exiting the flight in the event of an emergency or an evacuation. To put on the, the vest and to help other people and the life raft and all this stuff. And we essentially tune them out because we believe. We, we actually want to put that away and say, you know what? That's not going to happen. I don't believe it for me. It's very possible that we approach an eternal destination the same way. If you're asking that question, if you're coming at it that way, it's very possible that this truth this morning or this warning this morning may be specifically for you. It's important for us to see that Jesus is giving a warning to his disciples. You know, I believe that too often as followers of Jesus, as his disciples, we look at point, uh, passages like this and we point out different things and uh, we spend time arguing about uh, different realities of them or try to gain enough information about them or we try to debate them. Um, but Jesus didn't speak on hell so that we could do all those things. He, he, he spoke about hell so that we would live a holy life and so that it would compel us and motivate us to tell others about Jesus. I believe one of the most horrific passages in all the scriptures found in Matthew 7. It starts out like this. Don't judge others, because if you judge others, you're going to be judged yourself. We like to go to that passage for that statement, don't we? It goes on to also say that wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to eternal destruction. And it says many will be that go that route. But it also says straight is the way and narrow is the gate that leads to everlasting life. And few will be that, that go that route. You know, there is a reality that in this passage and how, how horrific it is, it's not, it's not even talking about hell or fire or torture or, or torment or, or any of these things or darkness. In fact, none of those words even occur in this passage. The most horrific word in this passage is the word many. Many will be in that wide gate of destruction. Verse 22 and 23 of chapter 7 say this. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons and perform miracles in your name? And it sounds a whole lot like this in the church circle. But Lord, didn't we, didn't we attend church every week? Didn't we do our best to, to step in and serve every time that we had an opportunity? Didn't we serve in the choir or on the worship team or, or taught a class? Jesus, didn't we do that? And, and if our approach is to, to air our laundry list of Christian activity and cry out to Jesus as Lord, we may be missing it. There are many who call out to him as Lord to justify what they did here on earth. Jesus' words here in this text say, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. You see, the reason why this, this passage is, is horrific is there are people that believe in Jesus or say they believe in Jesus, that cry out to him as Lord, that, that go through the motions of church and Christian activity 
And then we'll stand before God one day, and he will say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. The reality is, those people, maybe some of us in here, have never responded to Jesus and don't have a relationship with him. You don't love him, and you you are not living for his kingdom, for his rule and reign. Please understand my heart here. I I truly believe that we're all going to stand before God one day and be judged. And we're all going to be responsible for what we heard today. You see, these words of, of warning from Jesus to us are super important. So much that he asks the disciples in verse 51. He says, do you understand all of these things? And the response was, yes. You see, I I like football, and I like football analogies, and I I can picture Jesus being in a huddle with 12 guys, okay? Bear with me a second for, for the analogy. He's in a huddle with 12 guys. Time is ticking on the game clock. He's getting ready to call the play. He's getting, you know, the ball is getting ready to be snapped. And he, what he's saying is like, if you don't know the play, there is a very real possibility that you're going to get hurt, you're going to go sideways, or you're going to get destroyed. And before I get into this whole great commission thing, there is a reality of you knowing the playbook. It's important. Today we have to listen and respond in the same type of, of approach that the disciples would have. You see, I believe when we have a proper view of sin and a proper view of God, we understand texts like this to the fullest. You see, it's, it's scriptures like this that help us draw nearer to God and help us to create a reverence and an awe from within us to understand who he is, to have a holy fear of who he is and how he reigns. And because of that, it leads us to worship that translates into our daily obedience. So we've looked at three functions within this text, but I also want us to see three responses to the warnings that Jesus gives as well. There are three things that we can reflect on right here where we're sitting based upon what Jesus said to us this morning. The first question is this, where do I stand with Jesus? Today there's going to be over 8,000 people who die and spend eternity separated from God. Like I said in Matthew 7, many there will be that go in the way of destruction. And some of you in this room, you know where you're at, and you're saying, you know what, Dave, I'm good. You've seen the Spirit of God move and work in your life, and you're confident in your faith in Jesus. You put your faith and trust in him alone, and you are secure so much So that if Jesus were to blow the trumpets tomorrow, that you feel so secure in him, in your relationship with him, that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're heading to heaven. You'll be there with him and those who have gone on before us, and uh, you are confident in that. But some of you in here in this room are not so sure about that. You look back at the words of Matthew 7, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. And what is stirring within you right now is this tension. Do I really believe? Am I really following Jesus with my life? You may not be secure in your faith. So here's my word on that, and please hear me. It is not too late. You are hearing this message today, this warning from Jesus to us, to our ears and our hearts. You still have time. 
What the gospel calls us to is to repent, to turn from our sin, and to believe in Jesus, to respond in faith to him in obedience. And this morning, if you're here today and you would not fit in either one of those categories, maybe you're saying, you know what, this is the first time I've ever been in a church building. I wouldn't call myself a believer or a follower. First off, I want to just say thank you for being here. Whatever it took to get you to be here, thank you. Know that God is using this in your story to draw you closer to him. That we have a God who is near to us and he's not pushing you further away. So whatever is going on in your life, please know that. Jesus also wants you to hear this warning today as well. If you feel this stirring in your heart, I would love if you would respond. Come talk to one of us pastors or anyone here in this church. This is a safe place. We want to help you. The next question we have is where am I heading? And this is a question just, I mean, it's beyond our eternal destination. But it's a question that pokes into the trajectory of our life. Because I believe that if we look at where we're headed, we could actually believe and understand where we are and where we've been. There's a lot to say with the trajectory of a lot, our life and the point of belief, okay? If you say in your, in your heart of hearts that, you know, you responded to Jesus back when you were five years old and your life has looked like anything but following Jesus, then I would challenge you this morning to heed the warnings from Jesus, to hear this and understand that you have a responsibility to ask yourself this question, where am I heading? Where is my life heading? You see, what I believe is the root of your faith is characterized by the fruit of your life. Your life should be characterized by growing up in your faith, not staying a baby, right? Growing up, learning how to walk, living a life of repentance and faith, a life that is characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. And I'm reminded of this very fact that the fruit of the Spirit is not something we muster up in our lives. It's the power and the work of the Holy Spirit in us. So if your life is not characterized by love and peace and self-control and kindness and patience, then I would encourage you to ask yourself this question. Where am I heading? You see, as we, as we see God rightly, I, I believe it helps us to understand where things are heading in our life. Maybe you're sitting here and you've, you've drifted away from God. Um, at some level, or you've drifted away, you just are, are done with the things of church, but for some, for some reason you're back here this morning, but you're unimpressed with the things of God or how the church has hurt you, maybe you can identify with that personally. My prayer for you this morning is that God would soften your heart, that he would give you the grace to hear his words, to understand him, and to respond to faith in him. You know, I believe something that God has been teaching me a lot lately in my own life is, is that when I have a wrong view of my circumstance, when I feel like things are out of control, it actually stems from a wrong view of God. When I reset my eyes and my heart back onto the God that I know is in control, who is good, who is great, who is glorious, and who is gracious, then what happens in my circumstance is I don't worry about control. I don't worry about different things and how they play out because my belief in the circumstance stems from a proper view of God. The third question I want us to all ask ourselves this morning is, what is my responsibility? You see, I believe the Bible calls everyone, everywhere, to consider this inescapable reality. 
and what it means for eternal judgment for all of us. For believers, the reality of hell should be motivation for evangelism and mission. When we hear messages like this, it should compel us to say, I want to live different. One way of looking at it is like this, is like the Titanic. Not the movie, but the ship, all right? When we look at the world like that, uh, again, be careful with, with viewing the world like the Titanic, like everything's going down, it's all sinking, and people are dying and falling off. But if we have that lens at some level, we can see people falling and needing attention. We want everything in our own strength to get people off the ship and onto the lifeboat. When we hear this message, it compels us to say, what do I need to do to proclaim Jesus to a lost and dying world around me? To get them into the net. See, the most unloving thing that Jesus could do is give us a warning about an eternal judgment and then just turn and walk away. He doesn't walk away. He is near to us and he is with us. And I believe he empowers us as the church, his people, citizens of his kingdom, to respond to his perfect work on the cross and the hope that we have in his resurrection. So a few years back, there was a video that came out by um, world-renowned atheist Penn Gillette. Okay, he's famous for um, his magic show in Las Vegas with Penn and Teller. And um, world-renowned atheist Penn Gillette has a lot to say about Christians. And it's important because he came out with a video a few years ago and posted it online. And he shared about a story about after one of his shows. What had happened in one of these shows is somebody came up to him and gave him a New Testament. And in that New Testament, there was a specific word written for Pendulette. And he said... In, in this video that he shares, he said, this, this man was a good man. This man was kind. This man had love in his eyes. He looked at me and talked to me. You see, what's important about Penn Gillette sharing this story about being a, a devout atheist and somebody having the, the boldness and the courage to share Jesus with him, he said, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? Or, or evangelize. He says, how much do you have to hate them to not tell them that they're, they're, they could be eternally separated from God? So I would ask you that this morning. In our responsibility of carrying out the mission of the church, the proclamation of his goodness, the demonstration of all the things that he said lived out by how we live our life, know that we can confidently step into what Jesus is calling us to say and do because we have power and strength in him. And Jesus is calling at us as the church to be his ambassadors, to get people into the net, to share the message of the gospel, the good news, that although we are sinners, Jesus died in our place, and we can trust in his righteousness and his goodness. Are you listening to Jesus' warning? Really listening. This morning, we're going to go into a time of responding to God's word. I'm going to invite the, the band to come up and the worship team to come up. And I want you to ask yourself these questions in response to what Jesus said to us specifically in these warnings to us this morning. Where do I stand with Jesus? Where am I heading? 
and what is my responsibility. My hope and my prayer is that all of us would hear these words and these truths and not respond to them the way that we do for tornado warnings or messages on an airplane about our eternal destination. I'm going to pray, and after that, the band is going to play, and there's going to be a time for you to respond and come forward and get things right with God. Let us pray at this time. Father, we come before you. We thank you so much for who you are. Father, in the weight and the gravity of this text, may it sink in to help us to believe, to respond by faith to that which you've already done for us. That, Jesus, our goodness comes from our ability to repent and believe and to trust by faith the work that you've already accomplished on our behalf. So, Father, this morning, as we're all answering these questions in our own life, I pray that you allow those who are in here to respond to you. It's not too late. Father, we love you. We trust you. Would you continue to be honored and glorified in our worship this morning? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.